Let's pray. This morning, O oh Father, we have begun singing songs that exalt the incarnate Christ. And we know by your word and by your spirit that you are the promised Messiah, Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. And now you reign. You sit on your Father's throne and you are Lord of all. We pray, Father, that you would help us to see the glory of this one who is very God of very God. And yet everything that a human being is. And so we praise you. Praise you for the hypostatic union. Praise you for that union of God and flesh, deity and humanity, and for the work that you accomplished in the world, not only by your death, but by your righteous life and your active obedience. And now, Father, as we come to this book, this little letter of Colossians, I pray that you would give us eyes to see Jesus in ways that are fresh, ways that perhaps are new for us, and may you be glorified in it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning we're launching into a new study of one of my favorite letters of the Apostle Paul. And I say that it ranks among my favorite epistles of Paul because it is one of the most Christological passages of Scripture in the Bible. And by Christological, I mean this is one of those places that talks more about Jesus Christ than hardly any other place in the Bible. And God wrote it, or the Apostle Paul wrote it, to a very insignificant church. Some of the most wonderful truths about Jesus are revealed to us right here in this brief epistle. For example, in this little letter, Paul will teach us about the supremacy of Christ over all things. He will glory in the complete salvation that God provides in Christ to all who believe. He will teach us that while Jesus is superior in rank over all creation, he is also the head of the body, the church. He reveals that Jesus is completely sufficient for every spiritual and practical need in life. It is also here that Paul reveals the great mystery that Christ is not only over us and with us and in us, he abides within us eternally. He is Christ in you, Gentiles, the hope of glory. Moreover, in this short letter, Paul will reveal how these truths shape the way we live and love in our families, how we successfully battle and defeat temptation in our lives. Don't you want to know that? The Colossians is critical for this. And here we will discover some of the most practical counsel for daily life found anywhere in the Bible. You struggling in your marriage? Paul has a word for you. 
In fact, Paul has a number of words for you. <laughs> and my hope is that by studying Paul's inspired message to the church, our hearts will be filled with wonder, awe, and praise, and that the Spirit of Jesus will change significantly how we think of Christ and how we think of ourselves and how we think about God's mission and how we play into that mission. My goal this morning, however, is simply to take kind of a jet tour over the whole letter, as has been my tradition since the beginning. It's so important that we understand context because, say it with me, context is king. That's right. If you don't know the context, then uh, you're probably not going to get the point of the text right. And so my goal is to kind of take this jet tour over the book and and then as the weeks progress ahead, we'll work through these four chapters, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. And so let's take a look at Colossians from about 30,000 feet. We're going to be flying pretty fast here, so try to keep up. Let me just start with this. If the book of Ephesians can be viewed as a picture of the church of Christ, Colossians surely must be about the Christ of the church. Ephesians focuses on the body, Colossians focuses on the head. Colossians divides neatly in half, with the first two chapters focused on rich theology, and the second half focused on the intimate practicality of how to live out those deep, rich doctrinal truths. The overarching message of this book is this, that Christ is preeminent over everything, and you, believer, are absolutely complete in him. You don't need plus anything, not Jesus plus anything. If you have Jesus, you have all, say it with me, all of God's provision. You didn't say it with me. Say all of God's provision. Everything that God has to give you, he gives you in Christ. And we're going to find in the book of Colossians how there were some teachers in that day who were trying to persuade the Colossians, these new believers, that they needed something more than Jesus. And I won't preempt next week's message, but Paul will argue that because believers are rooted in him, that is in Christ, they're rooted in him, alive in him, and completely uh, they're found complete in him, it is absolutely inconsistent for us to live apart from him or to live as if we are not united with him. Clothed in his love, with his peace ruling our hearts, we are equipped to give Christ first place. That's what it means to be preeminent. First place in everything so broadly speaking, this is what Colossians is about. Paul wants you to make Christ preeminent in everything. It's not that he isn't already preeminent, but he wants you and me to not only recognize it, but to affirm it in every aspect of life. It is here, by the way, where Paul says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all in the name of of the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, do it all to the glory of Jesus Christ. Now, to help you get the, get the feel for the context of the book before we begin our study, I want to talk about four things. First of all, the history of the city 
of Colossae, the background of the people, the founding of the church, and the motive of the message. And those four points are in your bulletin. The history of the city, the background of the people, the founding of the church, and the motive of the message. And you're probably thinking, Pastor Dan, is there any way you can get through all the four of those points? And by God's grace, I will. I'm more worried about next week's message, but uh, we'll talk about that next time. Let's talk about the history of the city. Approximately 1,000 miles southeast of Rome, there were actually not one, but three cities very nearby one another, about 10 miles apart. And their names were Hierapolis, Laodicea, and Corinth. The ancient Greek historian Herodotus tells us that in 480 B.C., that's like 300 years before Paul, Colossae was known as a great city in the region of Phrygia. Tax records from the time indicate that there, in this area there were as many as 50,000 Jews in that area and several, um, perhaps many, synagogues. And not only were there 50,000 Jews, but there were probably many times more Gentiles in this region. Nearly 100 years later, Xenophon, I'm not sure I'm pronouncing his name right, referred to the city as inhabited, prosperous, and great. Now, you may be thinking right now, this is a boring history lesson. Just hang on. History reveals that the city of Colossae was situated on a major highway that linked East Asia with West Asia. And that explains why Colossae was so prosperous. At its time, it served as the entrance into the Lycus Valley, which is where everybody wanted to go. If you wanted to go on vacation, you went to the Lycus Valley. Or you went to Corinth, which wasn't far away. So the Lycus Valley, I mean, if you wanted to be prosperous, this is like Silicon Valley. This is where the money is. This is where things are happening. This was the, the center of uh, commerce and culture. And eventually, however, as new cities were built just to the north and new roads were established, the flow of commerce got redirected away from this bustling city of Colossae and caused it to fall into decline. And perhaps this explains why when Paul traveled on his third missionary journey, and he got within that region, um, he never visited Colossae. Best we can tell. There is some disagreement on that, but, but most commentators will tell you Paul never visited Colossae. And we'll see in his letter that he refers to the believers as those he has heard of, and we presume that means that he has never met them. He is, they had never met him. And by then, far from being a great city, Colossae was just a small hamlet moving steadily toward extinction. And so this was not a great church. It was not a great city. In fact, by 400 AD, 300 years after the ministry of the Apostle Paul, Colossae had all but disappeared. Today, there's nothing left of it but a few acres of unexcavated ruins. The reason I tell you all of this is to demonstrate that in the infinite wisdom of God, he is moving, and I want you to pay attention to this, especially those of you who are going to be on the church plant. And by the way, if you're visiting this morning, there is another group at least this size down the hall participating in this as well. And so I want all of you guys to listen carefully to this. This should be to your encouragement. The reason I tell you about the decline of 
Colossae is to remind us that in redemptive history, God moves his plan forward through ministries, mostly temporary ministries of local churches. In fact, I want to suggest that the great city of Colossae was never greater in the eyes of God than when in its period, its period of greatest decline, God planted a small church there to magnify the glory of his name. And so I want to say to you 80 who are preparing to leave here to go plant, um, tell me the name again, <laughs> Christ Fellowship. <laughs> Wasn't in my notes. Christ Fellowship Bible Church. Those of you who are leaving, I want you to know your labor will not be in vain. This is how God has always done it. This is not just the hobby horse of Calvary Bible Church. And it shouldn't just be a novelty of churches in the area. This is great commission work. This is what God has always done. He has always planted churches, and, and often in insignificant places, to magnify the glory of his name and to draw people to himself. Listen, hardly anyone knew that this church existed. But to this small assembly of believers, the great Apostle Paul wrote an inspired letter that exalted the glory and preeminence of Christ in a manner that is unsurpassed in the Word of God. Paul loved this church, as we will see next week, even though he had never been there. Hardly anyone sets out to declare the glory of Christ without quoting something from the letter that Paul wrote to the Colossians. It was a short letter written to an insignificant church in a declining city. But what seems small in the eyes of men is frequently of great importance in the eyes of God. And we should always remember that. Listen, the church of the tares will always be bigger and better funded. And God will always do his work in faithful churches no matter their size, he will draw men to himself. Now, this was certainly true of the church of Colossae, and that is, for our purposes this morning, the history of the city. Let's talk about the makeup of the people. Before Rome came to take over the region in 133 B.C., about 100 years before Paul's ministry began, it had been conquered and then ruled by a man who you know is Alexander the Great. It was he who brought the Greek language and Greek customs and many philosophical and religious ideas to the ancient world. We should remember that it was from the Greeks that the ancient philosophers such as Plato, Aristotle, Pythagoras, Socrates, Epicurus, and others arose to shape men's ideas of reality. And they got it wrong, mostly. It was this same Greek culture that brought in many pagan religious notions that were considered universally true. Not just in Greece, but in, in Rome. In fact, when the Romans came, they actually adapted their philosophical religious ideas to the Greeks. So when you look at some of the Greek gods and then compare it with the Roman gods, you'll find the same people with the same traditions with different names. 
Like the Greeks, for example, they believed in a kind of Parthenon of gods and goddesses who ruled the world and everything in it. And though the two cultures had different names for their gods, they were essentially the same. And I'll, I'll mention one in a little while, but I'll mention it here so you can be on the lookout for us. When we talk about Ephesus, uh, there was the temple of Artemis, whom this is a female goddess who was a hunter, among many other things, fertility goddess and other things. Uh, to the Romans, her name was Diana. And that's kind of the way it went with these two cultures. It was a Greco-Roman culture. And the people worshipped these goddesses and gods with abandon. The Greeks and the Romans made up a, a category, they, the two of them together made up a category of people that the New Testament often refers to as Gentiles. And, and just, a, just an interesting note on this when I was thinking about it. We speak English. How many of you speak English? Or at least can understand it. Good, most of you. And um, as I was driving and thinking about these things uh, this week, I was headed up Camp Bowie, and it occurred to me, our language, you know where it comes from? Most of it is Greek, and a lot of it is Latin. It's Greek and Latin. And you know what? Both of those ethnicities are Gentiles. We are, even by our language, historically Gentile. Morally, we are, um, we are Judeo-Christian. But as a people, ethnically, we are Latin and Greek. We are what the New Testament calls Gentiles. Most of us, I would dare say, that 90, maybe 99% of us at Calvary Bible Church are Gentiles. We, we might have a couple of Jews. I don't know if we do. Um, but most of us are Gentiles. And listen, th this is significant because Paul is writing to Gentiles, mostly Gentiles. Now, in the city of Colossae, there were a significant contingent of Jews and probably a synagogue. Most of the believers in Colossae, as I said, were Gentiles. The significance of this is that these two worldviews, pagan and Jewish, were bound to either clash with one another or somehow find a way to meld together into one religion. Jewish teachers, in fact, in and around Colossae, in that part of the ancient world, were, in fact, blending Old Testament law and ceremony with pagan teaching, pagan philosophy. And we'll learn more about that in the weeks ahead. In the meantime, let's talk about how this little church got started. We've talked about the history of the city, the makeup of the people, and now the founding of the church. Now, to discover the origin of the church of Colossae, we need only look back to the book of Acts, where Luke offers a, a very thorough travel log of the Apostle Paul as he journeyed through the regions of Asia Minor, present-day Turkey and beyond. The most prominent fact for our discussion this morning is that his third missionary journey, in his third missionary journey, Paul set up something of a base camp, and this was new for him. Normally, he would just travel and he would come to a synagogue or he would meet a group of Jews like in Philippi with Lydia and the women who were 
who uh, were at the water at the time of prayer, and, and he would just kind of pass through a town, and he would find a synagogue, and he would proclaim the gospel, or he would find a little group, and he'd proclaim the gospel and establish a church and keep on moving. And I don't know if he was just tired or if he's just sick of being nearly beat to death, but he came up with a new strategy, and, and no doubt by the Spirit, he set up a base camp. And that base camp was in, you could probably guess, but I'll just tell you, Ephesus. And, um, and his, his little base camp was in Ephesus, but more particularly, it was in what is known as the school of Tyrannus. Now, he taught there for two years. And he argued in the synagogue for three months before he taught for two years in the school of Tyrannus. It's not like there was an actual school there started by Tyrannus. Uh, it was named after the man who owned the place, but it was really just a hall. It was, it was, it was like, like our fellowship hall or our conference room. It was a place where a, a larger-than-household meet, group meeting could, could get together and talk. And so it's traditionally referred to as the school of Tyrannus because it took place in the hall of Tyrannus. And there he taught for two years, and men from all over the region came to the school of Tyrannus because they were curious. Word got out that this crazy Jew was preaching something that no one had ever heard before, at least not among the Gentiles. And it was interesting and compelling. And so they came. Listen to Luke's rendering of the account of what happened. Just a snippet of it. Luke 19 says this, And he entered the synagogue for three months and spoke boldly. And for a time it looked like he was going to win the Jews, which he almost never did in his travels. For three months he spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them, the Jews, about the kingdom of God and the synagogue, but when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way, that's, they, they're trying to come up with a name for Christianity, and they just called it the way, and speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, that is, those who had been brought to Christ through that ministry, and reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus, this continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greek, and God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. Now, we're fairly confident that the church of Colossae, and perhaps the ones in the neighboring city, Hierapolis and Laodicea, were planted by the same man. He was a Greek, his name was Epaphras, or Epaphras, if you rather pronounce it that way. Epaphras is mentioned repeatedly in the book of Colossians. He was a man who grew up in the Greco-Roman culture in a family that no doubt did what everybody else did. They worshipped the gods of their world. And apparently, in his travels to Ephesus, perhaps by business, perhaps just out of curiosity, because he heard about the school of Tyrannus and what this, uh, this Jewish Man was teaching, in, in any case, he made his way to Ephesus, and he came to the school of Tyrannus, and he found himself confronted 
with the compelling claims of Jesus' life, miracles, atoning death, and resurrection. He heard Paul preach and explain the good news that there is really not many gods, there is only one. And because of his infinite love with which he loved us, he set out on a mission to save the lost, which was everyone. He humbled himself. He took on human flesh and became a man. And we know his name, John says. His name is Jesus. And see, it's an appropriate name because the word Jesus, the name Jesus, means Yahweh saves. God, the God, the only God, is not a trickster God. He is not a deceptive God. He is not an idiot God. He is a saving God. And he came and he took on flesh and they named him Jesus because that's what the angel told Mary to name him. And he lived a perfectly righteous life and died a horrifically bloody death. And, and he did it purposely. He, he said before his crucifixion, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down. I have the authority to lay it down and I have the authority to take it up again. And it's exactly what he did. And he did it in order to bear the sins of all who would believe. This is the character of the God that the apostle was bringing to the nations. He's a God who saves if you will have him save you. He's a God who redeems if you understand you need redemption, if you will humble yourself. And by the grace of God, Epaphras found himself standing before God as a broken man. As one who is spiritually bankrupt, Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who view themselves as spiritually bankrupt and in desperate need of what God has provided in Christ. He repented this Epaphras and he believed and he placed his eternal hope in the Lord Jesus Christ and his life was never the same. He was radically changed. He went from pagan to Christian. And nobody even knew what Christian meant at the time, hardly anybody. Significantly, we also learn that Epaphras, Epaphras was from, guess where? Colossae. He's from Colossae. He lived in the city of Colossae. We know this because Paul writes, when he writes this letter to the church in Colossae, he mentions, and here's the quotation, Epaphras, who is one of you? Moreover, Paul says the reason the believers in Colossae know anything about the gospel of, grace, of the grace of God in Christ is because Epaphras brought it to them, Colossians 1.7 says. This is one of many reasons, perhaps, why Paul refers to Epaphras as our faithful brother and beloved fellow servant and a faithful minister of Christ. He was an evangelist, no doubt, Paul not only taught him the rich doctrines of grace, 
But he also put within the heart of Epaphras the Great Commission. And Epaphras just went everywhere preaching the gospel. We know very little of him. But it seems apparent that he was the founder of the church of Colossae. So what, what did he do? He went to Ephesus, heard about the school of Tyrannus where Paul was teaching, listened to Paul, was not only convinced by Paul, but the Holy Spirit did his thing and caused him to be born again to a living hope. He took that gospel and he went home. He took it home. And the people in his city, by the grace of God, believed. And so Epaphras was the founder of Colossae. Later on, in his letter to Philemon, which is the next book chronologically in your Bible, Paul refers to Epaphras as his fellow prisoner in Christ. Apparently, when Paul was arrested and taken to Rome for his first imprisonment, from which he wrote the pastoral epistles, Epaphras went out of his way to find and minister to Paul. He must have struck up a great friendship with Paul during those two and however many years. Uh, another passage says three years he was there. Epaphras, no doubt, was there a lot and got to know Paul. When Paul got arrested, uh, probably there in Ephesus and taken to Rome, um, Ephesus knew that there, I mean, uh, Epaphras knew that there would be needs, and so he he went to him, thousand miles away from home. He came and he found the Apostle Paul and ministered to him. Therefore, he was, in a sense, a fellow prisoner with Paul. He was in the jail with Paul. But here's my question. Why would Paul speak to Philemon about Epaphras? Why would Paul write a letter to Philemon, which I just mentioned? He wrote a letter to Philemon. Why did he write a letter to Philemon and mention Epaphras? Well, you see, Philemon had a slave. But let's just complicate the plot a little bit. Um, Philemon had, apparently he had servants. He had slaves. And I don't want to go down that rabbit trail today, except that Philemon, the book of Philemon, was a wonderful tool in the hands of the abolitionists who were Christian believers who were decrying slavery. Philemon is one of the key texts. Nevertheless, at the time, he had slaves, and one of them was a young man by the name of Onesimus, or Onesimus, you may have heard him. And Onesimus got tired of being a servant, and so he ran away. And he didn't want to get caught, so where would you go? Uh, well, you'd either go to a forest and hide and probably die there, or you would go to a metropolis where you could just blend in. And so this is, this is an amazing story of God's providence. So he goes to this massive city, right? No GPS, no lookup. Paul of Tarsus, let me, three websites or 50 websites, and last seen in jail number whatever in cell block four or whatever, None of that. You just walk into the city and you disappear. And you're trying to stay incognito. And who knows what happened, but somehow God in his providence took this young man, this runaway slave, and brought him right over to Paul. Maybe he got thrown in jail for something. But, or maybe he makes friends with someone who's going to see the Apostle Paul. 
In any case, he meets Paul. And here's Paul in his, in his um, rented house. He's under house arrest. People can come and see him. His friends are coming to visit. And here comes Epaphras. And he walks in, and there's Onesimus. What are you doing here? And, uh, and Paul says, no, no, Epaphras. It is not Onesimus anymore. It is brother Onesimus. Because Onesimus repented too. He became a follower of Jesus Christ. Now, back to Philemon. So, Onesimus is a new believer. Here comes Epaphras. He gets there, and he's, he's there to tell Paul about the health of the church in Colossae. And Paul says, i got to write a letter. Got to write a letter to Colossae. He writes the letter that we're going to be studying, and he gives it to Epaphras and tells Epaphras, take the letter, and by the way, take Onesimus, and a letter that I'm sending to his former master, who is Philemon. And you take it to him. And by the way, where does Philemon live? In Colossae. They're all homeboys. They grew up in the same place. And so the church of Colossae was planted by Pastor Epaphras, graduated from the school of Tyrannus under no less than the Apostle Paul. He learned his formal theology and his practical theology in the school of Tyrannus under the tutelage of Paul. And evidently, by the way, the school of Tyrannus was enormously effective as a home base for Paul. It was enormously an enormously effective endeavor for the cause of the gospel. Here's, here's what Luke says, and I already read it, but let, let's focus on it. Luke tells us in Acts 19.10 that Paul's ministry there was so effective that Luke could write this. Listen carefully to this. All the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Now, how did that happen? Well, it seems clear that Epaphras was not the only young man who had caught a passion for Christ and his gospel. Men from all over Asia Minor and other places were coming. The word got out. He'd come to this school. Tuition is low, quality, high, student-teacher ratio and all that stuff. And, and you don't have a, 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 an accrediting agency telling you what to do. But men from all over the place came, and they came to listen to Paul and were convinced by Paul. And when they were convinced of the gospel, they stayed. Teach me more, teach me more, teach me. I, I remember when I went to Word of Life Bible Institute as uh, not a pagan but an unbeliever. When I got up there first week, I was confronted with the claims of Christ. I had heard it 10,000 times. But that week, that weekend, the Lord rescued me, saved me, redeemed me, regenerated me. Any of those terms were true of me. It was a significant change. I'm here today because of that change that took place in that first weekend of Word of Life. And then we started studying the Bible, and they were bringing in these professors from all over the world to teach us little segments of the Bible. And we had to, we had to read every chapter of the Bible and give it a fresh title, every chapter of the Bible. And we were in deep, and, and the more I learned, the more I thought, I got to know more, I got to know more, I got to know more. I, I was like one of these guys. 
teach me more, teach me more, teach. I got to go to college and study this. I got to go to seminary to study this. And it reminded me as I was thinking through the history of this about the Reformation. Uh, fast forward um, 1,500 years, 1,400 years, and the church is in terrible decline. All kinds of foolish traditions have made their way into the Roman Catholic Church, and the world was ruled by the Roman Catholic Church. And one day, a little monk from a, um, not a, a well-known place, not, not a well-traveled place, he suddenly comes out with a nail and a parchment, having written his 95 theses, nails it to the church door in Wittenberg, and the world begins to change. And you know how the world began to change? Yes, through the writings and teaching of Martin Luther, just like the Apostle Paul before him, right? He was, he was studying Paul. So here's Luther studying Paul. He recovers the gospel, and men start coming to him. Young men start coming to him. Teach me, teach me, teach me. Man like Calvin, John Calvin, John Knox, Philip Melanchthon, Ulrich Zwingli, Martin Bucer, and, and some of these men were, were not from Germany, where Luther was from. Calvin was French. Ulrich Zwingli was from Switzerland. And these men came and they, they took the gospel and they took it home with them. And it turned the world upside down. No wonder Paul says in Colossians 1, 5 through 6, that in all the world, the gospel is constantly bearing fruit and increasing. And it's no wonder that in Romans chapter 15, he makes, Paul makes this statement, there is no room for me, for my ministry in these regions. Are you kidding there are thousands of square miles. There are cities and towns that have never been reached. I think what Paul means is it's taken care of. The men who came and took the gospel back, they've got this. I'm going to Spain. <laughs> when he got arrested for the last time, his ambition was to go to Spain. He was like a, a bow, always strung. He always had a plan. He always had an ambition for the gospel. Until so Paul said, in all the world, the gospel is constantly bearing fruit and increasing or, or growing. I remember when I lived in Tennessee, there was a, uh, and if you ever drive through Tennessee, Georgia, and, and those uh, states, when you're driving through on the highway, uh, one of the distinct, distinctive features that you'll see, especially uh, outside of the winter months, you're going to see a vine that covers all the trees and bushes, and it just kills things. It big leaves, and it's called kudzu. And somebody brought it in as basic ground cover, and now it's taken over America, at least uh, the southern states where it, it thrives. And that's what Paul was saying. The gospel is like, and the church are like kudzu. And it's just growing and increasing. 
as men come and they receive Jesus, they take it home, they preach the gospel, they plant churches, and Christianity grows. The gospel grows. Now, I mentioned why Paul wrote a letter to Philemon, but the more, in question, more important question is why did he write a letter to the church of Colossae? And that's a good question. And the answer will really, I think, set us up to grasp the book as a whole and prepare us for our study beginning next week. So we've talked about the history of the city, the background of the people, the founding of the church, and now let's consider the motive of the message. The motive of the message. What was the occasion or the need for Paul's letter to the Colossians? What motivated him to write a letter to this small, insignificant, mostly Gentile church? It's a Jewish man writing to a Gentile church. Well, when the church of Colossae was planted, everything about the Christian faith was brand new. And since their pastor and church planner, Epaphras, was trained by the very Apostle Paul himself, it seemed as if the church really did get off to a great start. Nevertheless, Paul had some concerns. He was afraid that if this little fledgling church was not taught to be discerning about what religious ideas they should embrace, they could easily be led astray. And I don't get the impression from the letter itself that they had gone astray. I hear him make statements like, don't let anyone deceive you, like it hasn't happened yet. But he was concerned that it might, because it was happening in the other churches. Now, there's good reason to believe that the church was made up mostly or entirely of converts of pagan Gentile religious frameworks. Everyone worshipped the gods of Greece and Rome. And such false deities such as Isis, Serapsis, Helios, Selene, Demeter, Artemis, all of them were enormously popular in Paul's day. In fact, Ephesus was the home of one of the seven wonders of the world. I mentioned this earlier, the Temple of Artemis, also called the Temple of Diana. And so the first danger that these young believers, especially the young men, were faced with was the pressure to return to paganism. Pagan worship in Ephesus, and even more so in Rome, was, a, was appealing because it required the worshipers to engage in all kinds of sexual practices in the worship of their idols. And when the gospel came, however, it suddenly brought in the hearts of men, the desire and power to turn away from all those practices and to live a holy life with the aim of simply pleasing the Lord. And this is precisely what Paul calls for. I want you to, I know we haven't actually looked at the text here, but let's look at it. Colossians 3, Colossians 3, I'm going to show you a few texts here toward the end. Verses 5 through 10. Now keep in mind what I just said about about paganism and the temples and the, the rituals and the appeal to men, especially young men. And here's what Paul says to them in Colossae, verse 5 of Colossians chapter 3. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is 
idolatry. Isn't that interesting? He puts um, sexual impurity in the category of idolatry. And for us, this is, this is metaphorical in the sense that idolatry can be a metaphor of any, really any sin. And yet in their day, it was actual. Sexual impurity and idolatry went together. Continue reading verse 6. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. And these you once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander. By the way, isn't it interesting that he, he takes these respectable sins. He wouldn't say you're an angry person. You, you, you might say that you're frustrated, which is just a veiled admission that you struggle with anger, right? And, and it's in the same discussion as sexual sin. He's not equating the two in, in, in terms of the kind of sin, but the reality is they're, they're enough to send you to hell. You must put them all aside, anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Listen, the image of God is being restored in you now that you have come to Christ. And so turn away from those things. The danger of turning from Christ to idols is no less real and compelling today in our modern American culture than it was in the days of ancient Colossae. I mean, we don't have any temples around us that are tempting us. But you know what? They've just been replaced with things that are more lurid and more ubiquitous. You know what ubiquitous means? It means seemingly everywhere present. And we can't look at a building and say, I'll stay away from there. There's sexual immorality there. No, uh, yeah, but it's on your phone. It's in your pocket all the time. It's, it's, it's ever, everywhere before you. Many of the practices Paul mentions here are just as seductive and tempting People, especially young people in our time, especially if you're going to a secular university, God bless you if God has called you to the kind of career that requires you to be in a, in a, in a, uh, a, a secular university uh, because you will be challenged in your faith and people will try to dismantle it and separate you from it to the best of their ability. And Paul is teaching us that trusting in Christ, entering into covenant with Christ, means that we turn away from such things, even if they have been the accepted norm among our peers and our parents and the prevailing worldview of our culture. Turn away from it anyway. In Christ, you have put on the new self and are being renewed after the image of your creator. The image of God is being restored and so the first danger that concerned Paul is that some would be tempted to turn back to the pleasures of paganism. Secondly, the second danger Paul warns of is the false teaching that claims to be Christian that was prevalent in that day. The false teachers of Colossae agreed that the Christians should triumph over the sins that we just read about, but they had a novel way of doing it. William Hendrickson suggests that it was as if they were saying, are you losing the battle against temptation, against your evil nature? We can help you with that. 
Faith in Christ is good, but it is insufficient. You need Jesus plus whatever it is they have to offer. But Paul's preach, Paul preached this, that Christ alone is sufficient. It's the very opposite of what the false teachers were proclaiming. These false teachers had apparently come up with a list of man-made rules that must be obeyed. Some of them were right out of the law of God. Uh, some of these rules were about eating and drinking, ceremonial laws. But Paul taught that everything that the believer needs to battle temptation of the flesh is found in Christ. He is the substance. Everything else is the shadow. Notice in chapter 2, look at verse 16. Therefore, this is Colossians 2.16, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink or with regard to festival or new moon or Sabbath day, things that are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. All of the sacrifices for all of the millennia that they were being sacrificed were nothing but shadows. Christ is the substance. All of the ceremonial law, it was nothing but a shadow. Christ is the substance. And some of the false teaching was rooted in ancient philosophy, especially Platonic dualism. Isn't that, it makes you sound smart when you say it. Uh, Platonic, because it comes from Plato. And dualism, meaning there's, there's two things going on here, and, and here are the two things. They believe, Plato suggested, and a lot of the philosophers uh, and Gnostics uh, agreed with this, that spirit is good, matter is evil. Spirit is good, flesh is evil. Therefore, subduing impulses of the flesh can be achieved by harming one's physical body. And this was especially true in the ancient ascetics who worked hard at denying themselves every form of pleasure and even engaging in self-harm. These same false teachers taught that since matter is evil, the body is evil. And therefore, God can never appear to man in human flesh. God can never be man. Why? Because, philosophy trumps all here, matter is evil. Only spirit is good. If it's flesh, it's evil. And so they believe that God, who is spirit, did not personally create the physical world. Why? Because matter is evil. A holy God could not create an unholy world, an evil world. Rather, a kind of emanation, or sometimes they refer to as an eon, or an aeon of God, it, 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 some kind of secondary manifestation of God, which is less than God, played a more direct role. So it, they had to separate God from creation, and in order to do that, they came up with this philosophical idea that it wasn't really God who created it. God created a, a kind of a, 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 an imperfect copy of himself, and then copied that, and copied that, and copied that, and, and you get all the way to the end where you've got this powerful being who is so far removed from God that he's kind of between good and evil, and so he has the ability to create something that is made of matter, which is evil. You follow that? Me either. But <laughs> regarding... These emanations, a lot of people thought they were just angels. 
and some of the angels, that some of the false teachers claimed that they had met some of these angels personally through visions. And Paul taught that all of these teachings are false because God's all-sufficient provision for man is none other than Jesus Christ and him alone. He is both God and man, and he is sufficient. Note what the writer says in chapter 2, verses 18 and 19. Watch this. Let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in details about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through the joints and ligaments as they grow with a growth that is from God. Let no one deceive you. Let no one pass judgment upon you. When reading through Paul's letter in Colossians, you'll hear him emphasize that Jesus Christ is, listen carefully, Jesus Christ is God in flesh. This is the place where Paul emphasizes that, I think, more than anywhere else in, in the 13 letters of Paul. For example, he says in, in chapter 1, verse 21, and you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, he's writing to the church, you pagans, you, you former pagans, you were once hostile to God. You who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in, watch this, in his body of flesh by death. Jesus not only became flesh, he lived and he died. So don't give me this stuff about spirit is good and matter is evil. Jesus is both. Jesus is both. Chapter 2, verse 9. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells in what? In bodily form. I mean, not only that, but in, in, in 116, he says this, By him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers and authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Listen, this was a direct assault against the philosophical dualism of the false teachers. And it was designed to exalt Christ in the hearts and minds of his people. In fact, we might say that the very purpose of the book is to exalt the Lord Jesus above all. Hence, we read in 1.18, and you can turn there and look, he is the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, firstborn meaning highest in rank, so that in everything he, now listen to these words very carefully, in everything that he might be preeminent, the highest, the ultimate, the first, the most glorious. In chapter 3, verse 17, and whatever you do in word or in deed, do everything in the name. We slap names on kids these days, those poor kids, you know. But in the Jewish mind, the, the name was not just a moniker. It was a declaration of the character of the person, the being. And so do everything in the name of the Lord, Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God, Jesus. And do it giving thanks to God the Father through him. In other words, let Christ be preeminent in all things in your life. He is God's all-sufficient provision for man. This is the motive of Paul's message. 
He wanted the saints of Colossae, and he wanted the saints in Fort Worth, for that matter, to believe that God has made Jesus preeminent over all things, and he wants us to live in a manner that shows the world that Christ is preeminent. And here's what he's going to say. If you're a master, Christ should be preeminent in your leadership. If you're a servant, Christ should be preeminent in how you serve. If you're a dad, Christ should be preeminent in your fathering. If you're a husband, Christ should be preeminent in your marriage. If you're a wife, Christ should be preeminent in everything that you do in the home. If you're a child, Christ should be preeminent in how you obey your parents and how you carry yourself in the world and how you speak to those you know who don't know Christ and to those who do in everything, in everything. Your relationship with the church should be a manifestation of your sober belief that Christ is preeminent. If we had time, I would take you through some of the key features of this letter, more of them. The most dominant of all is a vision of the preeminent Christ, which I had Keith read to you earlier. And if we had time, I would, I would take you in to, to see what God has done for you in Christ. And if we had time this morning, we would talk about how to live for the glory of Christ. These three things, plus there are other things that, that Paul in this letter just wants you to know and believe. And by knowing and believing them, they will affect every, every other area of your life. But it all starts with this, that Christ is preeminent over all things. In Christ dwells the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this revelation of your son. And I can't speak for all in this room, but I can speak for myself and say I can't wait to walk through Colossians and see the preeminent Christ in all the manifestations of his character, his holiness, his deity, his humanity, his humility reflected in us. Father, may it inspire us to do great things for God, trusting great things from God, and to do wonderful things even in in the little areas in our home, the seemingly insignificant things, may Christ be, in, be preeminent in them. Oh, Father, we are unworthy of these things, and yet we are so blessed by them. It is breathtaking to think of how blessed we are in Christ. And so we praise you. Help us to live in the good of it today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.